Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our series on the book of Philippians entitled, The Fellowship of the Gospel. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, as we learn about working out our salvation. At a certain children's hospital, a boy had gained a reputation for wrecking havoc with the nurses and the staff. Now, one day, a nurse who was going to be gone for a week said to the boy, you know, if you're good for a week, I'll give you 20 bucks when I come back. You know, a week later, she stood at his bed and said, I'll tell you what, I won't ask the other nurses how you behaved. You tell me, do you deserve $20? And after a moment's pause, a small voice came from among the sheets, give me a quarter. You know, some of us might feel that way about our obedience to God. We've made a lot of attempts at it, but we aren't ready to claim our full reward. There are things we should be doing and things we should stop doing, and we have to confess we're not there yet. But let's stop for a moment. How important really is obedience? Or let me put it another way. What happens if we don't obey? Anything? See, I've noticed a great deal of confusion on this issue. Many of us don't have a theological category by which we understand our obedience. First, we know that Christ paid for our sins on the cross. That is, all our sins, past, present, and future, are fully forgiven. And our record is wiped clean. And if that's so, where does obedience or disobedience and failure and effort and victory over sin and confession and all that stuff, where does it all fit in? And here's the confusion. For some of us, even while we know that obedience is good and very important, we don't have a real sense of how this thing plays out in the drama of our salvation. Is it obedience plus the cross? No, that can't be right. Are we saved by grace and then carry on in holiness by works or obedience? That can't be right, for that would wipe out the work of the cross. Where does obedience actually fit in? And then, There are those who feel quite negatively about any demand for obedience. It's faith that matters, they say, not obedience. Any talk of demanding obedience is very quickly met with charges of of works theology. Obedience may bless us, but it's not essential. At least, that's what some people say. And on the other hand, there are those people who never feel accepted before God simply because there are so many unmastered sins in their lives. They feel guilty a lot, and even though they do count on the cross for forgiveness, yet they lack an ongoing victory over sin, and all that has left them, well, uneasy and lacking a certainty in their salvation. They have a sense that their experience is not real, and it does not sound like some parts of the Bible. They worry about passages like 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And since the Bible says what it means and means what it says, they rightly assume these words are true, and, and that concerns them. So is there any way to understand our relationship to obedience that puts it into its proper context, understands its importance, while still helping us to remain confident in our salvation and commit us to trust in the cross? How should Christians deal with the commands that are given to us in Scripture? Now, remember that in our study of Philippians, we've just studied one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible, where we learned that Christ's obedience to his Father was so significant and so radical that he humbled himself to death on a cross. 
we also learn that the reward that was bestowed on Christ, that he has been given the name that is above every name, and that this shows us what is in store for us who obey Christ today. Furthermore, we notice that all this talk about the mind of Christ or or the attitude of Christ or Christ's internal thinking process arose because Paul wanted the Philippian believers to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. See, we notice that Paul was concerned that even while this church might weather the persecution they were facing, they might yet be defeated by internal rivalry, conceit, and a lack of humility. And should that happen, he was convinced it would destroy their gospel witness. And so that's why Paul told them about the attitude of Jesus and how to emulate it. So with this in mind, Paul is now ready to point out to the Philippian church the significance that obedience has. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence— Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, for some Christians, this is one of the most troubling passages in the Bible. Work out your salvation. Well, it just strikes us as wrong. Didn't Christ work out our salvation for us? Aren't works or working out salvation the exact opposite of justification by faith? In other words, aren't we saved by faith alone and not this kind of working? Well, clearly, because we know that this phrase, work out your salvation, is a phrase that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to take it very seriously. So let's see if we can understand it. Before we do, let's notice at the outset that as Paul demands obedience of the Philippian church, he begins with what I call a very tender tone. He doesn't call the Philippian church my partners in the gospel, but he could have. Nor does he call them my fellow Christians or even those who share a common mission to declare the gospel. He calls them my beloved. It's very hard to miss the tones of love that flow between Paul and these believers. He's not getting ready to roar denunciations at them. He is speaking to them as a lover would speak. He feels a deep affection, a friendliness, a warmth. He cherishes these people. So the commands for obedience comes within and to the family of those who are saved. This is not the way to be saved. But don't let the loving tones make you think this is not a demand. They are to be obedience. The phrase, work out your salvation, is in the grammatical form of an imperative. It is a command. Notice also that the command is not given to people who are being disobedient. Paul has never found them to be anything but obedient. He commends them, as you have always obeyed, he says. That doesn't mean that they were perfect or that there never were any mistakes or sins or even moments of rebellion among them. See, even the most mature Christian who has a track record of enduring faithfulness will tell you that there are times when their obedience falters. As 1 John 1.8 reminds us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so when Paul says they have always obeyed, he's not saying that they have a perfect track record. Rather, he says that their impulse is always the same. When they sin, they repent and confess what they have done is a sin. In other words, they don't justify themselves. They rather admit that God's ways are right and theirs are wrong. And then when they confess their sins, they turn from them and turn back to the way of righteousness. You see, the mark of the one who obeys is not that they never fall. 
It's just that they refuse to stay lying down in sin. Even though they fall 100 times, they will pick themselves up 101 times, striving to obey. But here's the key. Even people who have matured in their faith and have learned to be disciplined followers of Jesus, they too need to be encouraged to keep being obedient. I remember a number of years back, I was still then a younger pastor, and I had a very gifted and respected theologian who was a part of my church and who had heard my sermons week after week. But early on, when I first became his pastor, he put me at ease. He made an appointment to meet me, and he told me something I'll never forget. He said that it had been his misfortune to hear more than one pastor express to him that the pastor had been intimidated to preach when he saw him in the pew. And then leading forward, he said, Do you know that I need sermons as badly as anyone else? I, too, am tempted to stop trusting in the promises. I, too, struggle with the same things everyone else does. Please preach with freedom and know that I need to be encouraged, admonished, rebuked, and sustained with a promise of hope. I need it just like everyone else who sits under your preaching. See, I'll never forget that. In essence, that's what Paul is saying to these Philippian believers. Yes, they have learned to obey. Yes, they have become mature in their faith. But yes, they needed to be encouraged to keep obeying. You know, we all do. But notice something else. When you tell people who are obedient that you have noticed their obedience, which, which is exactly what Paul does here, notice that their natural response is not to let down their guard and start being disobedient. Instead, they are encouraged to obey even more. You know, I say that because some people are hesitant to encourage someone to say, I'm noticing how faithful you've been. I mean, they think that when you encourage someone like that, they're going to stop being that. Paul doesn't think that. So to mature Christians, Paul is urging them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And when we come back, we're going to see why this working out of our salvation applies to all of us, even as we do so with a sense of fear and trembling. We'll find out why. No matter where we're at in our faith, we all need an occasion to be reminded of the significance of obedience. When we become believers, we're commanded to work out our salvation by striving to live godly lives, yet with a full understanding that it is Christ who has actually saved us completely. But what does it look like to apply this truth in our own lives? Well, Dr. Neufeld helps us get a clear picture of having an obedience of faith, not works, after the break. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically, they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good. He provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give, and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain, and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer. And thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
Let's go to the next phrase in our passage. So not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul wants to make sure that his relationship of love does not cloud the issue. He doesn't want them to obey the Lord because of their respect for Paul. He wants them to be motivated toward obedience because of their respect for God. Now we come to the heart of the passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's see if we can understand exactly what Paul wished to convey. First, notice the words work out refer to a sustained, continuous, strenuous effort. You can read this as continue to work out. Never stop working out this thing. This is a lifetime project. You don't hear the language in this passage of simply remaining passive and saying, you know, I'm waiting for the Lord to produce in me an obedient heart. No, no. You are required to enter into a contest. Later on in verse 16, Paul will speak of running a race and then laboring a job. Effort is required. Notice also Paul says that we are to do this in fear and trembling. It's not as if Paul has never used these words before. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, he tells the Corinthian church that when he came to preach the word to them, he came in fear and trembling. In Ephesians 6 verse 5, he tells servants to obey their masters, and then he uses the very same words, in fear and trembling. See, for some of us, this idea of performing an action in fear seems wrong-headed. It reminds us of someone who acts out of panic or someone who imagines the worst possible scenario. And whenever we act with these emotions, we most often don't perform well, nor are our decisions normally wise ones. Calm yourself, we say. Don't act from fear. But let's consider the opposite side of that equation. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Notice in that text, Paul is deliberately imagining the worst of all possible scenarios. What if I led hundreds and even thousands to Christ and fall short of Christ myself through careless neglect of my own salvation? You know, some time ago, I read a pamphlet on sexual purity put out by Randy Elkhorn. In it, he invited men to imagine what would happen if they had an extramarital adulterous affair. He wanted them to imagine standing before their children and telling them that they had betrayed their mother. And then he wanted them to imagine looking into the eyes of their wife. And then he said, imagine your reputation. And then imagine the glee the demons of hell would feel as they used this sin to portray the hypocrisy in the Christian community and so forth. You might say, well, that's just fear mongering. But as we all know, that's a realistic scenario of what happens when we don't watch our sexual behavior, when we don't discipline our body. How much better to think about that scenario now while we are tempted before the sin rather than to experience that scenario after the sin? And so from that perspective, fear can be a very helpful motivator. Uh, but, but I know what everyone's still thinking. Am I still skirting the main issue? Doesn't verse 12 sound a little bit like works theology? But look harder at the verse. Paul is not telling the Philippians that they are to work for their salvation. You know, if you read this verse carefully, you're going to see that the Philippian church already have their salvation. Salvation is given by grace. No one can work for it. God gives it freely. 
The passage is telling us to work not for our salvation, but to work out our salvation that has already been given. Notice how Paul expresses this thought in another place. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, speaking about the work that Jesus has done, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Another way of saying that would be to say that Paul believes his task is to preach the gospel of Jesus in such a way that it will bring a result in his hearers. It will produce an obedience that comes from faith. Look at it this way. There are two kinds of expressions of obedience. One is what we might call the obedience of works. This means that a person obeys God believing that their obedience is earning their salvation. See, this attitude is hated by God. Why? Because this attitude puts God into a debtor position. We've worked for God, and now God is required to pay me back for what I've done for Him. I work for Him. He pays me proper wages. And by the way, many have this attitude. When they go through hardship, they're going to say, I don't deserve this. The assumption is, I've obeyed God, and now He owes me something. And so you hear people talk about their disappointment with God. God, after all I've done for you, this is how you've treated me. I am disappointed with you. I deserve better. Maybe today I'm describing you. And if I am, do you understand that in this attitude, you are trying to rob God of glory? You're trying to get glory for yourself. Look at me, you say. Look at my holiness. Look at my sanctification. Look at what I've done for Jesus. I mean, what a folly that is. What a cause for pride. What a sense of God who is indebted to my holiness rather than I who am indebted to God's holiness. But we don't have to adopt the obedience of works. We can adopt an obedience of faith. And what is that? It's an obedience that is the outgrowth of a changed life. Listen to what God promises us in our conversion experience. I'm reading from Jeremiah 32, verse 39, and it says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And do you notice what God does? He gives us a new heart. Do you notice what we do? We fear him or we obey him. Who is helped by our obedience? Let me give you a hint. God isn't. Obedience never does anything for God. No, no. Obedience is not for God. He doesn't need our obedience. It is for ourselves. Let us say you obey God, who tells you not to commit adultery. So if you obey, you're not only spared STDs, you're not only spared the devastation of your marriage, there is more. You will learn what purity is and why God is pure. Indeed, you will learn to live where God lives, in white, hot purity. And that's good for you. So salvation is something that must be worked out. It does require effort. But lest we think only of the effort, Paul will immediately correct us. In verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see what God does in terms of obedience? Two things. First, he gives us the will for obedience. And by the way, the will for obedience is a part of our conversion experience. Do you remember the first ever conversion experience in Philippi? It was the woman named Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And here's the obvious question. Why did Lydia pay attention to the gospel and then accept it? Yeah, right. The Lord opened her heart. Why did you say yes to Jesus if you have today? It's because the Lord opened your heart. Now let's take that one step further. 
Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, here is what happens when you experience salvation by grace. First, God changes your heart and makes you receptive to the gospel. We call that regeneration. Second, you receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Also, God looks at the suffering of Jesus and counts the punishment he paid to be sufficient payment for your sins. Your sins are forgiven and never counted against you. And then God plants a seed in you. That seed was planted when he changed your heart, in which you found you had a hatred of sinning and a passionate longing for obedience. Never forget God is working in you, both to will, that is to will to do his commands, and to work, that is to give you power to do his commands. While you strive for holiness, never forget that the power to do so comes from God. John, thanks so much for today's message, but I want to go right back near the beginning when you mentioned 1 John 3, 6, and it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Can you help us unpack that a little bit more? I know that passage causes concern in some people, and maybe it should. Uh, We should hear that and hear the warning that's in that. But at the same time, we should not hear that as perfection, nor as disabling people who struggle with an ongoing sin in their life. I think, if I understand that passage rightly, that anyone who is born of God cannot continue to remain comfortably in a sin that God's Spirit within us causes us to fight against that sin with all we're worth until we've defeated it. Now, that defeat might not come immediately, but the fight is engaged when we are in Christ. So if you're in Christ and you simply make excuses for your sin and say it's not that bad after all, I don't actually believe you're in Christ. To be in Christ is to be engaged in warfare, and I think that's what that passage points. This has been such an encouraging and important teaching on the balance between actively working out our faith day by day and acknowledging our dependence on God working in us to accomplish this. He is ultimately the one who empowers and enables us to be holy. Perhaps it's a good reminder as well to look at our own walk with God, to be honest about the sins we struggle with daily and whether we're making progress to overcome them. I hope you've enjoyed today's teaching, and be sure to join us tomorrow for another installment of Dr. Neufeld's series on Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Joshua from In Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. 
For more information, or if you would like to support InDoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.